Father in heaven, we're so grateful to thee that we can be here in the house in this day. Lord, we're thankful for the protection that we have from our government to do so. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't take that for granted as we know in many places in this world in this day, Lord, there are those that will find themselves in harm's way for doing that thing that we take for granted, and that being to gather together and to collectively worship thee and to seek direction from your word. And so, Lord, we pray that as we would gather around it in this day, that your spirit would speak to us where it's needful for each of our hearts. In particular, Father, where it's needful for maybe us individually and then also collectively. Uh, we, we know that this is a privilege that we should not take for granted. And so we pray that as we would gather here, that as iron sharpens iron, Lord, that we could seek that kind of growth as well. Lord, be with those who couldn't be with us in this day. Be with those that are struggling with ailments of the flesh. Lord, be with those who are some even having to work in this day. Lord, we're mindful of many different needs and responsibilities and, and um, difficulties that folks go through. And so Lord, we pray that your spirit would be with them and minister to them. Lord, now gather with us again around your word and we'll thank you for it in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. I ask you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, and a, just a bit of a, a bit of a preface. Um, reflecting on, on last time, going through Galatians chapter 3, I really struggled with that, that chapter. Not with the not with the theology of it or anything like that, but I, I, I made the comment to Ashley afterwards. I felt like I had what I've referred to as word salad, where this is a concept. There, there were phrases and things through that passage that I kept getting jumbled up in my mind and in my mouth even. And, and I, as I was walking out of here, I'm thinking, I, I don't know if there was one coherent thought in that whole message. And so I, I really struggled with, you know, Lord, I feel like I'm, supposed to go through this chapter or this book um, because we're quickly getting to the portion that I wanted to start with. And so I started out on a study and in, in looking into chapter four, and I had to almost laugh because it felt like the Apostle Paul, as he was writing this book, had the same feelings about chapter three. And when he got to chapter four, he said, I just need to simplify this. Let me cut to the chase and dial back some of the... Um, maybe we'll just say otherwise confusing comments that would be made and just be very specific and detailed to simplify the message that he was trying to give to the church in Galatia. And so I'm, I'm thankful for that. I hope that this is, is a bit clearer and it, it helped me. But what we will also notice about this passage is it, it, there seems to be a change in Paul's tone as he gets into chapter 4. You can remember chapter 3, he starts it out, Oh, foolish Galatians, who, who hath bewitched you? He's super hard on them. But when he gets to chapter 4, he, he almost sounds like a, a father dialing back with his kids. And so, I'm not going to give you an example, because I'm sure you all have them, but if you just think about that analogy with your, with your children, or even as a teacher, you have those moments where you just... I don't want to say you get enraged, or maybe you overdo your response to them. Something happens and you just go off. Oh, you foolish Ethan Ellie Max, or pick which are your three. 
And then you have to take a step back and you realize that that was probably a little over the top. It wasn't, it, even if it wasn't over the top, it may have been more than they needed in the moment. And now you have to go and kind of instruct them and to, to piece apart or piece back together the necessity of the lesson that you're supposed to be giving them. I, I, I hope that that's the tone that can be struck as we read this today. We're going to break the chapter up into a couple of different um, portions. But as you remember, the end of chapter 3, uh, Paul says in verse 29, it says, And if ye be Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And then we'll start in chapter 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors unto the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage unto the elements of the world. And when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son unto your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Howbeit then, when we knew God, excuse me, when, we, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them, which were by nature are no gods. But now, after ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years, and I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. We're going to stop with verse 11. So if you remember, the, the whole issue or the thought here was, Paul had visited had actually been in Galatia, had preached there on his first missionary journey, and word comes back to him that this church that had been so, um, so steadfast and had embraced the, their new relationship with Christ so strongly and so completely had now had some false teachers come in and pulled them back, pulled them away to, to start doing some of the um, rituals that were otherwise... Uh, old Jewish things. And in the first few portions of the, of the book, he talks about those as far as, you know, mixing things up or, or forsaking their salvation and does it in the context of all of these, the, the, the rituals, talking about the rituals. But in chapter 4, we see he starts to explain this concept of heirs, of slaves and sons and daughters. When he says servants, we can, use, we can interchange that with, with slaves, and I'll probably do that quite a bit this morning. He says now, again, he's pointed out that if we be Christ's, that we are Abraham's seed and heirs according to that same promise. What's an heir? I'm just hoping that's not mine. I think it might be. Sorry. Um, a distraction, right? Personality profiles-wise, you see on full display, because this is where mine gets distracted very easily. Um, what are the difference between slaves and sons? When you think of a child, you know, think of a child who, who has an inheritance coming to them. Effectively, everything in their household is theirs already, 
right? I mean, the prodigal son said to his father at some point, give me my inheritance, and the father gave it to him. I can't imagine that would ever happen um, in our house. I know if our kids are coming to us, I'm, I'm not giving them their inheritance just because they asked for it. But the description here is that this son has sons or daughters interchangeable, um, has this inheritance that is theirs. But as a child, they're still in bondage like a servant. They have, it says, uh, trustees, uh, where does it say? They're under tutors and governors. There are restrictions, there are guidelines, there are things that they are allowed to do and not allowed to do just by virtue of the fact that they're children, that they're adolescents, that they don't have, they have to live under the rules of the household so that they are raised in a way that they will come to an age where that, that inheritance will be theirs to then use and to, to pass on to their children. He says, as long as he's a child, there's really no difference from a servant, even though he be Lord of all. He's under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Before we had opportunity to come to know Christ, we were that same way. We were slaves in bondage. Now, when he's talking about it in terms of the law, the interesting part that I don't think I always appreciated, why did God give the law of Moses to the children of Israel? Now, we, we, we look at it in terms of that it was, it was imperfect, right? That no one could, could complete the law or could live by the letter of the law to find righteousness. And that's what they were searching for. That God gave them the law so that, they would, so that he would be revealed to them and that it would reveal sin in their lives and point them to Christ. Knowing, that the, knowing full well, because it says that he gave the promise to Abraham, knowing it full well that Christ would come at some point. But in the meantime, the law was there to point them toward Christ, to point them toward God and to understand more about God. But we can see that the devil took that, which was supposed to point them to good, and just pointed them to bondage. Pointed them to the fact that there was no righteousness that could be found there. Desperation, maybe, is a better way of saying it. That living under the law pointed out the complete lack of power we had to be overcomers of sin. And so, even then, as children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. It's interesting, this, in the fullness of time. You know, why, why didn't God, why didn't God arrange the plan of salvation that Christ would come sooner? Why did the children of Israel have to live under the law for so long without any fulfillment? What was it about this particular time when Christ came? Why can Paul say in the fullness of time? In Corinthians, he uses almost the same phrase. What was it about that particular time? I don't know. That's a point of study that I'm going to try to understand some more. And maybe it'll be something that we just have to find out in heaven. But there was something about this time, that time when Christ came to earth, that, that the plan of salvation was to be fulfilled, that the promise to Abraham was going to be fulfilled, and that a son was going to come. And the interesting part is, it, it, Paul does a, a beautiful job of breaking this up to explain 
these relationship uh, portions. He sent his son that the world could find adoption into the promise of Abraham. First and foremost, his son was the payment for sin. His son provided the opportunity for the adoption. And then it says, and because ye are sons, God sent forth his spirit of the son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. A description to show how the relationship between the, the Abba, Father, that is the, it's kind of flippant, but we use the analogy that's like saying uh, daddy or, or, or more uh, familial relationship. Taking God from a place of certainly holiness, but disconnected or where he was unattainable or unreachable to the point where he was there indwelling their hearts. And so, so the son provided the status. The son dying on the cross, shedding his blood for our sins, coming to this world, that provided the opportunity for all of the rest of us to have status as sons and daughters of Abraham. But beyond that, in addition to that, he sent his spirit to indwell our hearts to give us the relationship. What was different from anything before, what was different from the relationship that they could have with God as just children of Abraham and living under the law was the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And it came because of this adoption as sons and indwelling of the Spirit. Wherefore, and he just to clear it up for them, he says, Thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. In John, in John 17, yeah, John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that ye might know, that, he, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou sent. So if we put the, putting these things together, being an heir of the promise and Knowing God was the evidence and the empowerment, the, the confirmation of eternal life. Interesting. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Think about that comment for a second. How many people do you know? How many famous people do you know? We had this experience uh, a couple weeks ago. We were at a, a, a Mets game, a Syracuse Mets game. And standing down uh, on the side of the dugout on the field were Jim and Julie Beheim and their son, Buddy. And Tim saw them first and quick pointed out and says, send, send, Ethan, down there to, send Ethan down there to see him. And so he runs down, and they were as wonderful and seemed to be genuine as you could imagine. Not the coach that I've seen on TV my entire life. He, was, he put his arm around Ethan. He was talking to him, asking him what position he likes to play, and just going on and on and on. And I couldn't believe it. I, was, I mean, we have pictures, and it was beautiful. And Ethan comes back, and uh, the next day, or I don't know if it was the next day, the next time he went to school, he, he told somebody at school that he knows Jim Beheim. Which, I mean, it's, it's true. But how cool would it be if he was walking through the grocery store 
And Jim Beheim saw Ethan and said, Hey, Ethan, nice to see you. How was school? There's a difference, right? To be known, to know someone or to be known of them are two completely different things. And when Paul, it's almost as if Paul is, he's writing this down and he says, and to know God. No, even more, to be known of God. If you were known of God, now he's explaining this whole thing. You're joint heirs with Christ. You're a child of God. You are known of God. Why on earth would you retreat back to that status as a slave and, and forfeit all of the blessings of being a son? I mean, he, he uses this um, weak and beggarly elements. I mean, I like, it's, you, lots of translations give different uh, explanations of that. But just, why would, you, why would you forfeit that greatest blessing and run back to some nonsense that had no power in it? And maybe that's the heart of what all of the rest of this was trying to get to. What Paul was trying to get them to understand was that, do you, do you understand that by going back, to, it may not even seem like that big of a deal. This observance, you know, you observe days and months and times and years. It may not seem like a big thing that you're doing right now to go back to that old, uh, that old life. It may just be nonsensical little details. But do you understand at the core of it what you're doing? You're forfeiting the blessing of being able to be called a son of God, to be called a child of God, and voluntarily walking back into the servitude that you were trying to get out of in the first place. Like, what, what is, why on earth would you do that? Why would, why would you not understand the foolishness of that kind of a thing? I'm afraid of you, or I'm afraid for you, that I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. There's two interesting little um, explanations or analogies that I, that I read as I was looking into this a bit. Um, it's possible, it's possible for folks, because I think we, many of us had some of these predispositions ourselves, it's possible for us to look to observe the days and the months and the years and, all, and try, try to do everything by the regulation, to live by the law, and to feel that that, um, that commitment, that works-based effort provides us the sonship. That basically working our way as a servant or a slave, working our self um, hard enough in those things that would appear or would um, seem to provide some level of righteousness will somehow slide us into that adoption. Like somehow we'll be adopted because of that. An interesting one. And I, I did not know this. I, I had no idea about this. Um, but the connection was, was too interesting not to share. Uh, John Wesley, from we, we know him as the Wesleyan Methodists, um, John Wesley was an Anglican priest, orthodox, religious, um, had started something, I think it was called the Holy Club, um, renowned as a, a preacher or a priest in the Church of England. Did everything that would have espoused or, or looked like holy living. But at 35, 
the, the phrase that he used was, his heart was strangely warmed, and what had been an intellectual conviction transformed into a personal experience and redemption. A man who, who at that point had to recognize, after preaching and reading the Word and sharing the Word, had a conviction, had a, a redemptive experience, had a transformative experience by recognizing that he was obedient as a servant, but not saved as a son. And came under the conviction of the word and, and transformed his ministry to leave the church. And, and I, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, well, doesn't that sound like the story of Samuel Freilich? Somebody that had, had lived the life as a priest or as a, as a minister to, to preach the word in the state church. And by falling under the conviction of the spirit and the word, had that transformation. If you asked either one of those brothers whether or not they would uh, find it you know, kind of convenient and comfortable to jump back into that servant nature, that slave relationship again, how foolish would they look? How foolish would they think we are? The other one was uh, John Newton. Wrote the song Amazing Grace. Does anybody know what, I'm going to ask, anybody know what John Newton's job was? I, you probably all do. Go ahead, somebody can say it. Yeah, he was a slave deliverer. He was a captain of a slave ship and had a foxhole testimony. At, that's a really cheap way of saying it. But during a storm uh, off the coast of Newfoundland, I think, I think it said, um, was about to be shipwrecked and committed to give his life to the Lord and abandon and forsake those terrible ways. But... Do you know what he had on the wall above his desk? And this, of course, maybe some of you do, maybe some of you don't. But in his study, on the wall behind his desk, there was a verse. Sorry, I should have found it faster. Deuteronomy 15, 15. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Therefore, I make a I command thee this day. I command thee this thing today. Remember that you were a slave. Remember where you came from. Remember the price that was paid. Remember how much it cost for your salvation. And when we think about that, when we think about that, when Paul comes to him and says, "I'm afraid." lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. The, the frustration that he showed them at the front end of maybe, even as I said it, of the word salad, of do you understand the theology of the problem that you've created, that you, what you're doing to yourselves? In chapter 4, he just tries to get really specific with them. Do you understand how silly this is? Do you understand how dangerous this is? Why would you walk back to that old nature? It may not sound like anything big right now. It may just be little bits and details of things that you thought were comfortable, and these guys that came in here talked you into it and thought, well, you know, it, it might be nice if you tried this or did that. Do you understand how dangerous this is? And then... He transitions again, almost another completely different tone, and one that we don't, I don't seem to find in many of the other things that Paul writes. He says, Brethren, I beseech you, 
Be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at first. And my temptation, which was in the flesh, ye desired, despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that if ye had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? I'll stop there with 16 for a second. So some of what I'm going to offer up here is, is we don't know for certain. We, we don't know exactly what Paul is, is referring to here. But the crux of what he, he starts to share with them is, I need you to listen to me because I was there with you. I, I became one of you. I stayed for a while. We know he stayed there longer than he intended to because of this infirmity of the flesh. Now, I've heard suggestions that this was some kind of infection. Um, I read a couple things yesterday that talked about this could even have been malaria because he was coming out of, in his, if you follow the map, he was coming out of the lowlands, the swamp areas, and just as John Mark leaves, he goes up to Galatia, up into the, the mountains. And the suggestion is that maybe he picked up something in the swamps and that kind of scared John Mark away. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. But we know that whatever it was, it disfigured him to some measure. Because it says this infirmity, they didn't despise him. Well, why would they have despised him if it, if it wasn't something ugly? It offers up that they would have even gouged out their own eyes and given them to him. So clearly something with his eyes. So here's this man that was there with them and ministered to them. And even in spite of the fact that he was sick, he had this infirmity, he was not nice to look at, whatever. It says that they received him as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. The level of of um, acceptance of his teaching that they had to him was as if he was an angel of God. And he says, how? How is it possible that when I was there in all my weakness, you accepted me and, and took my word as, an, as from an angel of God, and now I'm become your enemy? When you liked what I was saying, when you liked what I was preaching, I was an angel of God. And now because you don't like what I'm saying and what I've preached, I've become your enemy. They, these false teachers, zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that ye might affect them. But it's good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, I have travail in birth again unto Christ be formed in you. I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. You, you get this sense that he's, his heart is breaking as he's trying to describe to them their, their state. That you don't understand. These folks have bewitched you. These other folks that are bringing some other gospel and, and telling you that you need to embrace these... these um, old Jewish tenants, they're just um, zealously affect you. The, the thought or the phrase that came to mind is like, they're, they're just trying to, to pour it on for you. They're just flattering you. They're just trying to, to, um, to make it seem like they're invested in you, but don't really have any care of you. 
And then he, he hearkens them back to the fact that, you know, there, I was there when your faith was born. And I, I'm fearful for you. I desire to be present with you and to change my voice so that you can hear, so that you can hear my voice and, and understand what I'm saying. And this, I stand in doubt of you, the side of my Bible says, I, I'm perplexed for you. Tell me that you desire to be under the law. Do you not hear the law? So we've got Paul that starts out, explains this, this dichot- not dichotomy, this relationship between slaves and sons, then works through the concept and, and the details of them. Like, listen, for some reason, the word that was so powerful and so um, perfecting in your life that I shared with you years before now has made me your enemy. Let me just clarify, get down real simple to talk about this slaves and sons thing and see if you really are comfortable walking back into that relationship. For it is written, Abraham had two sons. The one was a bondmaid and the other a free woman. But he who was a bondwoman was born after the flesh. He who was a free woman was by promise. Isaac and Ishmael. He's getting very, very simple for them. Which things are an allegory? For these are the two, excuse me, for these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which was gendered to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. And but Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of all of us. For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry, Thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath made more children than she which hath an hundred. Now we, brethren, are as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. If you're talking to folks, like this, this scripture, if you just walked out onto the street and started reading this to somebody, they would have no idea what you're talking about. Hagar, the bondwoman, the free, it doesn't, doesn't make any sense. But in this circle, in our circle, and in this circle, in the church in Galatia, this was the clearest rip-the-band-aid-off description you could give them. Do you want to be children of Isaac or children of Ishmael? You're talking about slaves and sons. It doesn't come any more clear than that. The child of promise. Do you want to be a child of the promise, or do you want to be a child of the flesh? Ishmael came by the flesh. Isaac came by the promise. He didn't even have to say that. It was so perfectly clear. He gave the analogy on the front end, slaves and sons, heirs to the kingdom. And then at the back end, he just wants to be very, very clear with them. Where do you want to stand? Sometimes I I think I need that level of... um, clarity. Sometimes I, I think I need God to speak with that level of clarity to me, to remind me of some of the, the decisions or choice, choices I'm going to make, decisions that I'm contemplating. As it stands for this relationship, or for this situation, 
How foolish is it for me, for us, for you, for any of us, to consider stepping away from being heirs of the promise? What does that look like? To any measure that I am not obedient to the Spirit's working in my life, that's what I'm doing. To any measure. Because where the relationship came from was the empowerment of the Spirit. The adoption, we were adopted as sons. But if we don't live in the Spirit, if we're not obedient to the Spirit, we're going to take those other props around us to try to fill in the righteousness. We're going to take those pieces of the law, and I don't mean the Jewish law, I mean whatever it is that we have gathered around us to make ourselves feel more righteous. We're going to gather those things around and start to rely on them. And we're going to rely on them more and more and more. And every time we do, we're going to rely on the Spirit less. And that's when the Apostle Paul has to come to us and say, You foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? At the same time, the reality exists. It existed for me specifically. I, I remember living in that um, condition, thinking that, the things that I was going to do or prop myself up with were going to be the things that made me a son. But in contrast, or in reality, excuse me, I was just a slave to them. I was a slave to trying more things to figure out what was going to make me righteous. And as he, he makes it so clear to them, it's, that's not the question. It's not possible. God's adoption and his empowerment in us, is what makes us righteous. It's his righteousness. It's not anything that I can do. And so if there's two things or two questions that I was trying to leave myself with to, to maybe add some clarity to this, is am I going to remain a slave or become a son? If I'm outside the fold, am I going to remain a slave or become a son? It's a question we have to each ask ourselves. But then for those of us who, who have been called sons and daughters, will I remain a son or tragically slide back into some measure of slavery. And maybe to add to that last one, am I going to pursue that relationship with God every single day? Am I going to make that my laser focus and understand that that's, that is my purpose and that will provide the opportunity to to be used by him in, in whatever ways he wants, but it'll make our lives fulfilled, not because we've found something that we can add to it, but that God has given us a gift to share with the world. Pray the Lord would add a blessing to these words.